0: Hey guys, welcome back to Mountain Murders. I'm Heather. And I'm Dylan.
1: Happy Valentine's Day weekend, folks.
0: Yay! Hope
1: everybody had a great weekend. We had a good time.
0: Hope you got some snuggles and lovin's from your lover.
1: Okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh,
0: that's not to you. You know you did.
1: Way to make it awkward, Dylan.
0: Mm, okay. so
1: weird. Now, we had a great Valentine's Day. We went out Friday night. Yes, we did. Did a little dancing.
0: Made fun of people.
1: Yeah, that was mostly what we did. And then yesterday, we went to Charlotte for an Oddities and Curiosities Expo.
0: That was pretty dope.
1: It was really awesome. It was crowded, and I feel like people were so rude. If you're standing in line, like, waiting to approach a table or a booth, these fuckers would just step right in front of you, literally push me out of the way.
0: I feel like we didn't see half the stuff.
1: I just like, fuck you, dude. You'll think when I kick you in the damn kneecap or something, because I'm really short. But we did That's not all I could do.
0: We did score <laughs> We did score some good stuff.
1: Oh we did. So my favorite thing I really love. We bought a um sideshow, like a circus sideshow banner. Yes. That was like one of my favorite things that we picked up.
0: Yeah, it was pretty cool.
1: What was your favorite thing? Um that I know.
0: What, the wet specimen? Yes. Oh, our little guinea pig we got.
1: Yeah, we got a hairless guinea pig wet specimen.
0: I'm going to name him Harry.
1: We're going to put him in our living room.
0: Yeah, his name's Harry.
1: Because if we um, decorate with dead things, then less people will stop by our house.
0: So it's a (laughs) win-win. It makes
1: them feel uncomfortable. (laughs) (laughs) It is a (laughs) win-win.
0: Yeah, so um, let's dive into this incredible case you have here.
1: Yeah, so today's case, very fascinating and happened right here in our hometown, Dylan. It did. We're going to be talking today about Thomas Wesley Harden. On October 22, 1991, the owner of the Covered Wagon Motel in Waynesville, North Carolina, discovered the body of 48-year-old Thomas Wesley Harden. Harden was an out-of-towner, a construction worker who had been staying for about a month at the motel. Now, initially, the investigating deputy considered his death that of natural causes. However, Harden's death would later be ruled a homicide. After being inspected by the state medical examiner, 29 years have passed with little progress in solving Hardin's case.
0: My God, that's a long time.
1: Very long time. Now this case has always interested me. As a child, I would swim at the Covered Wagon Motel. I guess my family, my mom, my grandmother, they knew the owner at the time. Yeah. They would let us swim there in the summer. I almost drowned in that pool.
0: Oh my God.
1: Like for real, some lady had to jump in to get me. I was a toddler. I almost died. Jeez. Right? So a lot of memories at this place. I remember this story in the newspaper when I was a kid as well. When we decided to create Mountain Murders, it was a case that was on my list. And in 2016, when I was still working as a news director for a radio station locally, there was a press release that was sent out about this cold case landed on my desk. And I just couldn't believe all these years later, this case had not moved forward at all.
0: Yeah, it's pretty crazy. It's almost like they're not doing anything with it, you know?
1: So I found Thomas's daughter Renee online and reached out to her. She was willing to share with us some great information about her dad, his life, and the case. With every case, someone out there knows something. And maybe we can help bring justice to this family, even if it's simply telling Thomas's story.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: A little bit about Thomas he was born september twenty first nineteen forty three at Turner Field Air Force Base in Albany, Georgia. He was the oldest of eight children. Hardin was raised by his grandparents in Albany, which is a mill village, so just a really small town, a lot of mill workers there, probably very similar to where we live. yeah, you got the we'll little guess. tiny
0: houses in a row, you know just uh, just you know enough room for a family. small family dad mom works all the time either or yeah just a little busy little industrial village
1: the hardens were not a wealthy family but they were rich in love he developed a very strong bond with his grandmother whom he called mon and when she passed away in 1980 he was emotionally devastated this was like his mother figure
0: i'm sure that was hard on him
1: thomas was outgoing he was very protective of his family and was described as having a tender heart he was loyal And likely to his detriment as we get further into the story. In August of 1960, he wooed a young woman named Elaine when he was 17 years old. She was 17. By the age of 22, they would have four daughters together. Wow. Four girls.
0: (laughs) Popping them out there.
1: (laughs) Though Thomas was a married man, he didn't let that stop him from being a ladies' man. He was tall, dark, handsome. He was described as having sort of Tom celic like dimples, big blue eyes. He knew he was good looking and he used those good looks and charm, flirting with those he found attractive. Again, his daughter Renee said as a teenager, she would get very embarrassed when her dad would flirt. Like they would go to the Piggly Wiggly and he would have the checkout girls just blushing and giggling and that it was just very embarrassing.
0: Well I'm (laughs) sure
1: infidelity was the biggest problem in his marriage to Elaine.
0: Well, yeah, that's not going to help any relationship. In 1969,
1: he met a young woman and began a passionate affair while he was away working in Indiana. She called it off when she found out he was married to another woman and was the father of four young daughters. Details apparently he had forgotten to mention. However, it was too late. She was pregnant. After they split up, she married another man who happened to be one of Thomas's co-workers. She ended up moving to Albany, gave birth to his only son in October of 1970, but Thomas didn't have an opportunity to raise his son, mainly out of respect for this woman's marriage. Right. The boy's stepfather, you know, had chosen to step in take this child, raise this child as his own. So Thomas was trying to be respectful of that situation.
0: Just probably
1: the right thing to do.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's a lot better than it being some, you know, fighting back and forth and, you know, him hating the child. You know, the stepfather just having feelings, bad feelings towards the child because, you know, the father is, you know, arguing back and forth. So, yeah, I think that's probably the best choice to make.
1: And though this woman would later say that Thomas had been the love of her life, she was married and she wanted to raise her son along with her new husband. Just less complicated. Probably less to explain to your child, too.
0: Yeah. You know.
1: He was a good grandfather. He would take his granddaughter fishing often. He would bait the dock with dog food so she would have better luck catching fish. He loved his grandchildren. His children spoiled them all at every opportunity. Thomas didn't even want his granddaughter calling him granddaddy when they would go to the swimming pool because he was worried that there would be hot single moms around. And he didn't want them to think he was a grandpa.
0: He didn't want her to scream, peepaw.
1: So he sounds like kind of a fun guy. Yeah. Just goofy. Right. I I can imagine, you know, being that granddaughter, how that had to be kind of funny. Because, you Uh know, he was probably teasing like, don't you call me papa. Right. Well, Thomas had a boat. And he often took his kids to the lake. That was an activity that they all really enjoyed as a family. And again, he really loved his kids and his grandkids. His daughters would say he was a very good dad. He would let the girls paint his nails, put makeup on him, you know, all in good fun. I mean, when you're a little girl and your dad is willing to sit down and play Barbies with you or beauty parlor or kind of any of those things that You know, it's just kind of funny to see Dad sitting down having a tea party wearing a fancy hat. Right. I mean, that really means something to you. Just like probably for a little boy, it's pretty cool to have your mom willing to, like, get out in the dirt to play monster trucks or whatever you wanted to play. Right. right? Makes a lot of memories. Well, at some point in 1973, Thomas got into trouble with police. He had allegedly sold some stolen property. Instead of turning himself in, he packed up his family and went on the land, settling in Sumter, South Carolina. At age 30, he was on his own, raising four little girls. He was hardworking, going every day, and making sure he was keeping a roof over their head, food on the table. Life at this time was pretty difficult, considering the girls didn't have their mother, and he had little support from any outsiders, family, hardly any friends to help with childcare. At that point, his daughters are having to assume some responsibility kind of take care of each other.
0: Yeah, the oldest, I'm sure, taking on a lot of responsibility.
1: His kids called him Mr. Nice Nasty, just kind of a funny name. And it's because he liked to clean house. He ran a tight ship. He had daily routines. He was pretty strict with sticking to a schedule. Everyone had their chores that had to be done. He liked things just a certain way. Well, so, yeah. Mr. Nice Nasty. <laughs>
0: yeah, he needs somebody to help out. Kids are going to have to do it.
1: Christmas of 1974, the kids came home from school to brand new everything. and This was like a Christmas that they would remember for a long time. They had brand new appliances, new furniture, clothes, toys. I mean, it was just a huge surprise for the girls. Thomas really did strive to be a good provider, and having grown up with little material possessions, he really wanted to be able to lavish his daughters with gifts and outings. He would take the girls' to the movies again they would spend a lot of time at the lake and he was just like these things were really important to him right little did the girls know he was not earning this kind of money working construction he had actually committed a federal offense when he took a piece of stolen heavy machinery across state lines and sold it he received about two thousand dollars for the property which he in turn used to treat his family
0: oh that's not good
1: with the law in his tail, he moved his family again in 1975, and they landed in Dotham, Alabama. It was within no time that Thomas was arrested. He Called was up to him. Sentenced to 17 years in federal prison for the stolen property and another eight years for state crimes he had committed in Georgia and South Carolina.
0: Wow, that's a that's not good.
1: Paroled in 1979, he went to a halfway house in Albany. It is there he met and married a second wife. He settled into married life with Kathy, taking two of his daughters to live with him. And things were pretty good during this time. His daughter recalls waking up on Saturday mornings to the smell of those hot and ready Krispy Kreme donuts.
0: Oh, gosh. And her
1: dad would be in the kitchen with the eagles cranked up, singing along really loud, wake everybody in the house up. Cleaning hey, the house. I got donuts.
0: Have a good day.
1: He and Kathy had a pretty active social life. They would host cookouts at their home. They would go out dancing quite a bit, and he would attend his stepson's Little League games, cheering loudly from the stands.
0: Well, it sounds like, you know, he uh, made some bad choices, paid his time in prison, but it sounds like he's trying to move on with his life, you know, and um, have a decent, stable home for his children, keep raising his children.
1: Well, you know, that's one thing I think people tend to forget when we're talking about criminals, no matter what their crime is. They're just people. They are just people, and we often just label them immediately like oh well this person's a drug dealer this person's a thief this person's a murderer right that's just one thing that they did it doesn't define who they are as a person right i mean people are very you know multifaceted people well it's We're true complex
0: just because you made these bad choices that doesn't mean you're a terrible person right obviously murder and things like that pretty devastating we talk about monsters you know, people that are, you know, enjoy murdering and things. But I think most of the time it's just, you know, bad circumstances. You made a poor choice, maybe drugs involved or, th- you know, anything like that. But that doesn't mean you're just, you know, you're a normal person who wants to, you know, have a job and, you know, have a household and raise kids if you have kids.
1: He was a hard-charging, hard-partying guy, too. Those closest to him said he cussed like a sailor, smoked like a freight train, and drank lots of Budweiser. And he really liked loud Southern rock music.
0: What's America's beer? He's a
1: good time party guy, right? Thomas earned the nickname Homer because working in construction, he did a lot of traveling for work. But he would always secure employment for his homeboys. He would always make sure that his brothers, his friends from Albany would have jobs, would be able to come along with whatever job he was working. He would get them jobs as well.
0: Well, it probably makes it easier to be away from home. If wanted you everybody
1: to be able to make money and have a good time. And I'm sure, yeah, have, have a couple friends around. Traveling for work sucks. Yeah. It would be really lonely.
0: Yeah, that would be, uh, be tough.
1: It was after the death of his grandmother, Mon, which if you remember, that was in 1980. She had raised him, you know, and family members say that they just saw a shift in Thomas's behavior. He started drinking heavily. It went from the, you know, maybe the weekend six-pack to excessively drinking to the point of just being drunk. And during those times, he would get really emotional, cry, you know, just a blubbering mess, or he would just get really hateful and mean and angry.
0: Well, it sounds like he's trying to drink his feelings away.
1: Exactly. And a combination of the depression, anxiety, stress, it was just all catching up to him. And it was during this time that Thomas began using heroin.
0: Oh, that's not going to help.
1: By the mid-1980s, he was on a second divorce, finding himself in more legal trouble for burglary and he spent some more time in jail.
0: Oh, gosh, Thomas, he's tried, but every time, it seems like he's getting, you know, then his grandmother dies, and it seems like it kind of sent him in a tailspin, and I'm sure that's what pro- helped lead to this second divorce. It's just, uh, I like thought the guy can't win.
1: By the end of the 1980s, Thomas was moving around a lot from job to job, and during that time, he met a woman named Sharon. The two ended up getting married in 1990, and they seemed like they were a pretty good pair. Thomas was working, but also actively using drugs and alcohol during this time. She would often go with him when he would go away to work. She would go stay with him in the motel rooms and, you know, just try to keep an eye on him. He was working a job in Chester, Virginia, and his wife hadn't gone on that trip, and she hadn't heard from him for several days. Fearing the worst, because she knew he battled addiction issues and alcohol problems, she just knew something was wrong, jumped in the car, and drove to the motel where he was staying. For her to drive from Albany, Georgia, up to Chester, Virginia, I mean, that's not an easy trip.
0: Well, that's a pretty good trip. That's
1: like half a day or so. To go that far, you know she had to be concerned. When she finds him in the motel room, he's with two other men that he works with, Pete DeWitt and Waldo Parnell. The three had been using drugs for days. I mean, they were basically on, what do you want to say, a bender?
0: Yeah, a binge. A bender? Yeah.
1: Sharon was really angry, as you can imagine, and she left him there.
0: Well, I can imagine their face when she come popping through the door. Never expected her to come popping in on their party.
1: He eventually returned home in an attempt to make up with his wife. Now, he told her he had sworn off drugs, he wasn't going to do them again, and that he'd had this big falling out with DeWitt and Parnell. They owed him money, and he was not going to be sharing a room with them again. I mean, he seemed pretty upset with these guys.
0: Well, maybe maybe he's had enough of it.
1: With the help of his wife, he, he did get clean. He stopped using drugs. A doctor had told him that he had liver cirrhosis, and he knew it was a death warrant if he continued drinking heavily. He cut back on the drinking, but he didn't stop completely, but he did stop using drugs, and he really seemed to mean it. He had quit using and was functioning pretty well. By September of 1991, Sharon and his daughters were concerned because he wanted to take another job with B, E, and K Construction, which was out of town. He had been doing well with recovery, and they felt like being away from home and maybe around the influence of those coworkers was not the best choice. They seemed to influence him negatively.
0: Well, yeah, that's, I mean, if you're... The
1: peer pressure, you know, being out of town...
0: Well, not having any accountability to the ones you love, and I'm sure she was helping keep him in line, if you will. And, uh, yeah, that's just not a good idea for anyone struggling with a addiction.
1: But Thomas needed to make some money. He took a job at what then was known as Champion International Paper located in Canton, North Carolina.
0: Hey, I've heard of that place. Are
1: you familiar with this paper mill, Dylan? I am. (laughs) Well, the paper mill would be doing a 30-day shutdown.
0: Yeah, they call that a cold mill. So there's a lot of projects going on. They bring a lot of outside contractors in, different crews. So, yeah, this makes total sense.
1: So, like, what kinds of things might they be doing?
0: Uh, just major projects that take uh, more than just a half a day or a day because and uh, because the entire place is shut down. It allows them to do some big capital projects, as they call them. Um, I mean, I, I don't know anything specific, but... Okay, so this
1: is like a big deal.
0: Oh, it's a big deal. Millions of dollars tied up, planned for years. Yeah, it's a big deal.
1: Okay, so Thomas coming to the paper mill, going to do some work, probably make a good chunk of cash. He's going to
0: make some good money. they're going to be working long hours. Yeah, get everything done in time.
1: Now, Sharon agreed that Thomas could take the job under the premise that she was going to drive up to this covered wagon motel where he would be staying on the weekends so she could be with him kind of allowed her to keep an eye on him, make sure he didn't get into any trouble, but it also kept him from just being lonely.
0: Yeah, well, that'd be nice to have your wife come up every weekend.
1: It's hard to be away on those jobs for weeks or months at a time, and especially when you have family. When you've got a wife at home, kids at home, a husband at home, I mean, you know, yeah, you'd rather be spending time with them than hold up in some motel room
0: Uh, in a strange town. Yeah, and uh, that's a little bit closer to her, you know, Maggie Valley to uh, Albany, Georgia, a lot closer, a little easier drive for her.
1: On the weekend of October 20th, 1991, the job was ending, and Sharon decided she was going to stay home. Thomas had a few loose ends to tie up in town, like pick up his last paycheck, he had to settle up on his room, all that stuff, but planning to come home soon. Now, I'm sure after working hard all week, as you mentioned, those long hours doing these big jobs, the last thing he wanted to do was pack up that vehicle on Friday and head home. He probably wanted to give himself maybe a day to sleep in, rest up. He had to pack up all of his stuff. I mean, you're out of town for weeks at a time. I'm sure you've got quite a bit of stuff with you. Yeah. Not only that, but the drive back to Albany is about, mm, I'm going to guess, five and a half or six hours from Waynesville. Wow. That's Pretty good drive. So I'm guessing he probably wanted to rest up, pack up, and then, you know, take a day to drive. Right. But two days later, he would be dead.
0: My gosh.
1: Now, when his body was found in the motel room, the responding deputy assumed he had died of natural causes. The deputy noted a few blood drops leading from the bathroom to the bed in the motel room. He was found on the floor in a prone position, and the mattress had partially, like, been pulled down, almost kind of on him. There were no signs of a struggle. The motel owner had gotten a call for Thomas at the desk. And I believe it was Sharon calling because she wasn't reaching him in the room. She was concerned. That's when his body was discovered on the floor. He had blood in his mouth and nose. A doctor named James Milling had been called to the scene, reported he believed it was a suspicious death. Now, he told the deputy he believed Hardin died of strangulation. But authorities did not immediately treat the case as a homicide.
0: That doesn't make sense.
1: Now, here's small town for you. Dr. Milling, was my papa's doctor? Ah. <laughs> I believe they were fishing buddies as well. That's what you get in a small town, right?
0: Yeah, but you got the small town doctor is like, yeah, I think this is not natural causes. And I think this man appears to have been strangled.
1: Yeah, exactly. But the
0: investigating deputies knew better because they haven't been trained at all in that stuff. That makes sense.
1: Haywood County Sheriff at the time, a man named Tom Alexander, oh yeah, said there were no signs of a struggle or forced entry, so he did not suspect foul play. Investigators would wait for an autopsy report. While well, the autopsy performed the following day showed that Hardin had died from hemorrhaging and fracturing of the larynx. The pathologist agreed with Dr. Milling's initial findings that Hardin had died from an injury consistent with strangulation, calling it a very violent, unnatural death.
0: Okay, so now the sheriff's department is going to be like, okay, we have a murder and that's how they're going to treat it, right?
1: Well, the sheriff's office sat down with the family and explained they had three doctors showing the death as consistent with strangulation, but they were not ruling out the death was from natural causes.
0: That doesn't make sense.
1: Investigators pointed out that Hardin had a history of drug and alcohol abuse, suggesting perhaps he had committed suicide. Now, Dr. Thompson, who was one of the doctors that examined Hardin, said it was impossible for a person to commit suicide by strangling themselves.
0: Yeah, because you pass out and you have to continue to strangle after you pass out to kill some... Uh...
1: The sheriff's office released a statement at the time to the local newspaper stating, We have no suspects. We have no motive. We have no opportunity. We'd love to solve this case and put it to rest, but we just don't have anything right now.
0: And I don't think they're looking for anything. Then
1: the case goes
0: cold. Okay.
1: But a few pieces of evidence surfaced that seemed to go unnoticed. It was reported by the motel owner that two men had, in fact, been staying in Hardin's room before the murder. Now, if you remember, Hardin had a fight with those guys, Pete and Waldo two co-workers while he was in Virginia, and he said that they owed him money. Sharon found a hairbrush and a bottle of shampoo in Thomas's Waynesville Motel room that belonged to these two men. And she recognized it as having belonged to those men because they had stayed together in Virginia, and she had been there, and she had seen the brand of shampoo and this particular hairbrush that she knew did not belong to her husband. Hey! The brand was the same, The same exact hairbrush probably had the men's hair
0: in the brush. Wow, there's some evidence.
1: Well, at the time, the deputy who was over the case, a guy named Jim Parton, told Sharon and Renee that unless they had names, phone numbers, or more information on those two men, then the sheriff's office couldn't really investigate them.
0: Isn't that what you do? Isn't that what the word investigate means? To find out that information? Well,
1: isn't that, like, what they're being paid to do? I'm I didn't saying, know it was like the family's job to be responsible they have,
0: for... They're the cops. They're to investigate the lead investigator on the case. And I'm telling you that I know someone likely was in the room with him. The man at the hotel who runs it. I saw two men in there. Just because the door's not kicked in and lamps knocked over, what the, do you have to have that for it to be a murder? I don't get that. I know you look, for, but there's no forced entry because they were in the room. They was cool with each other, to a degree. And then something happened. Well, Sharon had also
1: found a crumpled up DUI that Thomas had been issued while he was in North Carolina. And she told the sheriff's office about it, but they said they had no record of this DUI. They couldn't find anything about it. Sharon also found an aluminum baseball bat in Thomas's truck after the murder. The bat didn't belong to him. Sharon thought it was strange, but threw it away. Well, later on, Renee and Sharon asked the medical examiner if Thomas's injuries, like the crushing of the larynx, that had to take some force, like a blunt force trauma. Could that have been done, like if you were hit with a baseball bat, or if someone took a baseball bat and put it at your throat and pushed down, you know? And Dr. Thompson said, yes, absolutely. The injury had come from blunt force trauma to the throat, and that that would have been a very good or logical explanation.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: Now, there was blood found on Hardin's shirt and on the bed, but it was not tested. So who knows if it matched Thomas's DNA profile or if it was someone else's. Also, his pocket knife was missing. There is a theory that perhaps maybe he tried to fight off the attacker, maybe even, like, stabbed them with his pocket knife. Yeah. And that's where those drops of blood came from. And then the pocket knife was taken.
0: See, he has he has personal items. A man like a working man like that, his pocket knife is with him at all times, twenty four seven. He lays it beside him, and then you know when he goes to bed, empties his pockets with his wallet, and goes right back in his pockets when he gets up in the morning. Guarantee
1: it. Well, after all, the investigators said it didn't appear to be a homicide. But my question is, and I'm no medical expert, but if a person has a heart attack and dies, is it common for there to be random blood? drops around the deceased?
0: If a person has a heart attack and dies, when the medical examiners that look at the body back up that conclusion, that, yeah, they it looks like they died from a heart attack, they don't say, wow, it looks like this man was strangled. This looks like a homicide. They don't say that. I just, how they don't give any merit to the what the experts are saying. and I don't understand what well, why they're doing that.
1: Another strange element is that Thomas's shirt had a piece of chewing gum on it, and that gum was never tested. Well, had it been in Hardin's mouth, and you know, maybe when he was attacked, spit it out, or did it belong to someone else who maybe spat it out on him after they killed him,
0: or like it fell I'm just out? imagining out their mouth this they're...
1: person's killed him, and they're basically like, "Here's a fuck you," and spit their gum out on him,
0: or it falls out of their mouth literally while they're because he was a good size. Man, you know, he wasn't a little guy, so it probably was not easy to do what they did to him.
1: I mean, I'm just speculating here. But
0: yeah, but hey, here's but a big... But if I were
1: an investigator... Here's
0: a wad of DNA. I
1: have this mind that goes in these different directions that, hey, we need to figure out who belongs to this gun.
0: I just don't see him who sees the scene and, and it's like, oh, it just looks totally normal. You know, he probably killed himself.
1: Well, when the family starts pressing for more information and bringing to the attention of law enforcement that there are these various clues, evidence, could you look into these things? Detectives end up offering up this theory that Hardin had gone to a bar in Asheville, had a fight, returned to his room, and died. There was little evidence to support this theory. It was based on the fact that there was a membership card from a bar in Asheville found in Hardin's room. I mean, if that's the case and something happens to me, they're probably going to find, like, 30 private membership club cards for different bars in Asheville. Please don't let them assume that that's what I was doing today, if right. I end up dead.
0: He'd been there for weeks working. There's no telling when, because I'm sure they didn't go to the bar and ask any damn questions, I'm going to guess.
1: Have you seen this man?
0: Did, was he here last night, the night before? Do you know anything? They didn't do that, I'm going to guess.
1: Well, and there were even reports where, you know, I think the motel owner had said she had seen or he had seen him, like, the night before they found him. Like, come back at, like, 930 that night or something. So probably not time for him to get off work, go to the bar, come back. (sighs) Well, Thomas's daughter, Renee, she is not going to give up. She spent years hounding the Haywood County Sheriff's Office while maintaining meticulous notes about the investigation. And I know because I have had my hands on copies of these notes. Wow. She has detailed phone conversations. She has copies of emails, letters, notations, who said what, what time they said it, the date. Yeah, her notes are very thorough. Sharon Harden sent a letter to Unsolved Mysteries, hoping that her husband's story might become a show segment, which could spark new interest in the case. The stated medical examiner had actually referred Renee to the state's attorney general, but when she contacted them, they told her that their office couldn't really step in to help with the case unless Sheriff Alexander asked them to
0: do so. Huh. Yeah, we... Okay. But they uh, didn't do that because they can't. They'd really like to help solve this case, but we just can't figure out a way to do it.
1: In 2016, there was a detective with the sheriff's office that had told Renee they were looking into the case and that they would be planning a trip to Florida to interview a Waldo Parnell that they had found living there. That March trip was canceled, and a detective in Florida reportedly had found this Waldo Parnell, conducted an interview, and reported that it was the wrong man. Like, they shared the same name, but it was not the man they were looking for. Okay. Although the Haywood County Sheriff's Detective had not obtained a death certificate for Pete DeWitt, the same Florida detective had informed this cold case detective that Pete had died of natural causes and was dead. But they didn't actually get a copy of the death certificate. Okay. So, can you trust?
0: I don't know. It's
1: outside Law Enforcement Agency. I
0: don't know if you can trust them saying that the other what the other one said.
1: The case still remains unsolved. Thomas Harden's murder is not the only unsolved case out of Haywood County at this time. A woman named Linda Pilkington, who was 43, was last seen walking from her home on Oakdale Road in Waynesville after allegedly having an argument with her husband. She left out, you know, late at night, about 10.30, was not seen again, missing for two weeks, and then they find her body in a remote area known as White Oak, which if you've been to White Oak, remote is a good way to describe that place.
0: Uh, yeah, you don't end up there by accident.
1: Her body was discovered by a fisherman, and she was about 30 foot off White Oak Road and was lodged on some rocks, kind of over an embankment, like looking down on the water. Three branches covered the body, which made it difficult to see. Sheriff Tom Alexander was over the department at this time. And guess what? Her murder remains unsolved as well.
0: Imagine that.
1: Let's talk a bit about Tom Alexander.
0: Oh, I I I thought you might bring that up.
1: It was discovered that he was paid thousands of dollars every month to look the other way so that a South Carolina company could operate illegal video poker machines. In our county. Wow. The owner claimed to have paid $100 per machine each month, or he would not be allowed to operate in the county. Although Alexander was not officially charged, he was named in court testimony because of another mountain sheriff who had pretty much done the same thing and got busted in 2008. Federal investigators wanted to take a look at Alexander's financial records linked to the illegal gaming operation. He was also subpoenaed by a grand jury. Alexander retired in January 2009 without facing criminal charges for his
0: alleged role. Isn't it funny how that works? We'll just let you retire out if you just go away because more than likely he was going to drag other people, local people in power, down with him.
1: Now, can I just share my opinion on this sheriff?
0: I don't think he's a very good sheriff.
1: No, I think he... he's a crook. He's a good old boy.
0: And I don't think he's... He's a shit investigator, too. Honestly, after that story you've just laid out there, me and you could take control of that scene and figure that damn thing out better.
1: Well, Tom and I, we have a history, and not because I'm a criminal or anything, but can I just give you a little background on the
0: story? Lay it on us.
1: Okay, sometime in the early 2000s, I wasn't even living in this area at the time. My great-uncle was at home minding his own business, and he's an elderly gentleman. There was a home invasion. These three guys break in his house, attack him, seriously injure my my great uncle. He was in the hospital for some time, in a coma for several days. Oh my God. I mean, I believe he had like a brain, like a traumatic brain injury. I mean, this is really serious, right? Yeah. His girlfriend and a neighbor witnessed this attack, called the cops, knew the three assailants, gave eyewitness statements.
0: So you have witnesses.
1: Here are the men who broke in this house and attacked him, right? What happened? Nothing. Nothing happens.
0: Well, Well, you know me.
1: I'm a very vocal, outspoken advocate when I feel there's injustice in the world. Yeah. It's just who I am by nature. I am very disheartened by this situation and I contact the local newspaper and I ask a journalist Why don't you look into this? It seems like there's a lot of this type of thing that goes unsolved in our town. Right. Hey, this this journalist starts looking into it, interviews my uncle, gets copies of the police report, writes up a big newspaper article on it, you know, and asks Mr. Alexander, why did you not investigate this, or why haven't you made any arrests? You know, he gives some big song and dance about, well, you know, one of the assailants is... um, you know, enrolled member lives on the reservation. I don't have jurisdiction to go over there and arrest him.
0: You contact federal agents and tell them what's going on, and they go arrest them.
1: Yeah. Well, you bring the happen. federal
0: government into it.
1: Nothing ever happens.
0: That's ridiculous. That's a stupid... Who's going to even believe that dumbass excuse?
1: So nothing happens, right? Yeah. Then, some days after this article is published, guess who calls my mother?
0: Oh, let me guess.
1: Sheriff Alexander.
0: Oh, what did he have to say? He wanted
1: to confront my mother. And my mother says to him, well, Heather's a grown woman. And if you'd like her contact information, I'll gladly give that to you. And you can phone her yourself. She doesn't live here. As a matter of fact, she's in the military. And here's where you can reach her. He goes on to say he doesn't appreciate me calling him stupid in the newspaper. And my mom's like, yeah, I'm pretty sure she said you were incompetent, not stupid. And, you know, anyway, like I said, she's an adult. You can talk to her on your own. He then says, well, I'm the sheriff, and if I really wanted to find her, I could
0: do it. Almost huh. like that Wait. was
1: a threat.
0: Well, not if she's a damn murderer. You won't find her, you son of a bitch. And my mom was <laughs> like,
1: well, then I don't know why you're calling my house.
0: Because you sure don't find the people who commit these crimes.
1: I mean, so, again, I just don't understand. Here you got the seasoned sheriff in town who's going to call my mama and complain about me.
0: He sounds like a bully. When I'm an not, adult, I don't know. Harry, here's what you got.
1: I he- just don't have much for this fella, and I feel like there is a lot of unsolved cases and crimes that were committed under his uh, time in office Yep. that if there was an internal audit or investigation into the that period of time, right. that they would turn up a lot of unsolved crimes
0: yeah it sounds like a case of incompetence
1: bad leadership
0: small town sheriff he thinks he's you know the buck begins and stops with him what he thinks and says goes he's crook he's doing taking a a legal i mean that's basically what like almost like racketeering you know conspiring taking bribes and you know a network of criminal activity really if you got all this the legal poker going on. There's no telling what else he had his fingers in. And he don't want any out. That's why he don't bring outside agencies into anything for any reason. If Even if it is murder or assault. Serious assault. Because he don't want them sniffing around his back door. Okay. Because he's got a lot. Plenty of shit to hide. This is all speculation on my part. But what, uh, it's either he's a horrible, horribly incompetent and stupid. Let's go ahead and put stupid in. Because a stupid person takes the word "incompetent" for stupid because they don't know what the word "incompetent" means, and uh, he's either terrible at his job, very bad at it, or these were intentional decisions made for other reasons, and we, we don't know what those reasons are.
1: Okay, so yeah, I'm just floating it out there well, for it him, is. and I think this is a prime example of what you get when you have someone like him in office.
0: Yeah, incompetent okay. is
1: elected, and thankfully we do have. A great sheriff in our county right now. We
0: do. A man
1: who is very involved, believes in community policing. He is out there working the streets. He goes
0: on calls himself.
1: Yes. He's out there working yes, just sir. as hard as the deputies. He is. Sharing that caseload. I mean, you see him out in public. He's done a lot for this community. Yeah, well, so thank goodness for... Sheriff Christopher. Greg Christopher. Yes, great sir. man. I believe he's done wonders for this guy. And
0: I'm, I'm just glad Tom Alexander is not at the helm right now, given all the things, major issues this area faces. Yeah. Because well, we... here's
1: some of my thoughts. Now, did the investigators do everything that they could? It seems like there's a lot of evidence, clues, interviews that just never happened. Right. Is this case another one of those, like, small-town politics in play? He was an out-of-towner. They tried to play up the fact that he was a drug addict and alcoholic were they just thinking like who cares if this case is never solved right because he's not one of us right it's a complicated case because now 29 years have passed it's hard you've enough. got witnesses who've moved on can't be tracked down or have passed away
0: or people just forget the small one especially if it's that small thing they happen to see it, of people they didn't know you know just this glance or someone arguing beside a car you know these Things you're not going to remember for the next thirty years of your life, and I got one more theory. Maggie Valley, there where that hotel is, this whole area is all about tourism.
1: Yeah, well, I think that's actually technically considered Waynesville. It's not quite
0: Maggie, oh, but it's very
1: close. So I'm sorry. Well,
0: well, this area, this entire area, is all about tourism, and they basically say screw the locals and cater to the tourists. Let's be honest. I don't think that they didn't want man killed in Waynesville Hotel, local hotel, on the front page. Murder afoot, all that kind of shit.
1: Makes sense. Yeah, maybe. Well, and even now, it's a cold case. So is it like a lack of funding or resources that they don't want to have to put forth to do more investigation? I mean, it costs a lot of money to do DNA testing. A lot of manpower to work cold cases, especially when you are living in a high crime area. I mean, we have a huge opioid and methamphetamine problem here. Like a lot of mountain towns, a lot of southern towns. I mean, but by now, any evidence that they did have, I mean, it could be completely gone, destroyed, missing. I know that in Renee's notes that she had sent me, she was saying that the deputy, Jim Parton, who'd worked on the case, actually had a lot of the notes and files at his house after he'd retired okay, in his possession.
0: Now, is he doing that because he don't want anything to happen to him and he hopes something can come of it? Because we've, we've heard of cold cases solved for that very reason, but, or is, yeah, I don't know.
1: And again, <laughs> why was Sheriff Alexander and his office so dismissive about this murder theory when it was backed up by plenty of evidence?
0: All the experts.
1: I mean, the whole thing is a clear case of botched police work, an agency that's either too lazy to investigate, or maybe they're just apathetic, or they don't care, or, or they just some... don't know what to do.
0: Right. Or there's hiding something else.
1: Maybe there's incompetence. I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, this case has always just really upset me.
0: Well, how could it not?
1: And I hope that one day they get some closure. But if anybody has information, because you never know, it's a small town, someone might hear this, someone may know something. And if you have any information about what happened back in 1991, please feel free to contact Sheriff's Office, 828-452-6666, as this is still a cold case. And any new information or leads, I'm sure would greatly be appreciated.
0: You never know, maybe someone knows something out there.
1: Well, Renee, thank you so much for letting us tell your dad's story.
0: Yes, thank you.
1: And again, I hope that we might be able to bring a little closure for your family. But this has been the story of Thomas Wesley Harden, unsolved cold case here in Waynesville, North Carolina. And you've been listening to Mountain Murders Podcast. We'll be back with more true crime for you.
0: Bye.